Okay, welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today, and I think second week in a row, Bob Greenlee, um, my colleague and partner and uh, off, often guest on uh, Firewall. So, Bob, welcome. Great. Happy to be here every week. Yeah. Um, so, so the topic this week and, and just the reason Bob's on for the listeners is he's the smartest person I know. So whenever there's a really complicated topic and I just want someone who can explain it, uh, the answers, and this, by the way, this is true if we're talking to clients, uh, 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 portfolio companies, investors, whatever it is, it's, hey, let's have Bob on. So uh, Bob, Bob's on again today. So, so the reason I wanted to talk, Bob, is Coinbase went public last week. It's generated a tremendous amount of attention. And my gut is that a lot of people who are kind of vaguely interested in this stuff don't quite really know what all of it means. You know, they kind of could maybe fake it. Um, so if you're a serious, you know, crypto expert, uh, you might not like this episode because I think it's going to be pretty rudimentary for you and maybe skip it. But if you're kind of wondering what, what all this stuff is really about and you want to explain, um, that's what we're going to try to do today. And then we'll get a little more in depth as, as we go along. So, Bob, first question, what is the blockchain? Right. So there's when we talk about Coinbase, there's really two things that we're talking about, what we call the blockchain and then what people often are called the token or the currency. And so the first thing is the blockchain. And the blockchain is, imagine a huge, you know, worldwide spreadsheet that tracks every, um, every unit of value on a, on a currency. Um, so it tracks who owns it, what transaction is taking place, who's owned it forever, and where all of the dollars are in this case. So that is the blockchain. Um, it's what we also sometimes call a distributed ledger. And they call it distributed because anyone who owns one of the tokens also has a complete copy of the blockchain within as part of the token. Um, this means it's distributed, it cannot be faked. Um, and then the tokens are the assets that are included in the ledger. They're what's being traced. So the blockchain is included in the token itself, but also is itemized in the tokens that you hold the you know the bitcoins are a token so you can have blockchain without bitcoin but you can't have bitcoin without blockchain that's right if you have bitcoin without blockchain you ultimately have a dollar or something that is not traceable and the value of the the value of the token is is really negligible the blockchain does not have to have a token you can track literally anything water rights you can track auto vehicle registrations. You can track anything on a blockchain. A token is uh, what we are looking at when we talk about like a cryptocurrency. It's those tokens being tracked. Yeah, and listeners should know because because both Bob and I work uh, on on the mobile voting stuff. Um, that that's how frequently uh, mobile voting uh, can be cast and tracked, which is over the blockchain as as well. Even though it has nothing to do with cryptocurrency at all. So okay, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto whoever that is, it's sort of a pseudonym, wrote this white paper kind of defining the, the, the notion of what cryptocurrency and kind of that world could and should be. Have you ever read it? No. Okay. but just, No, I've read a bunch of these white papers and I, I will say with honesty, they start to run together. So, so then whether it's, it's Satoshi's or someone else's, what was kind of the original vision for, for crypto? So 
the original vision for Bitcoin, for these these Bitcoin currencies, is is a lot like what you see playing out without honestly the Coinbase exchange, which is that they would, and this is there's quite a lot of genius in what Satoshi Nakamoto or the person underlying that or people underlying that decided to do, which was they wanted to have a way to distribute the ledger so that it could be not so that it could be provable by anyone within the chain so that each currency did not need to go through an intermediary to be trusted because anyone who held the currency could theoretically uh, could trust it by validating by looking at the entire chain. Um, they ran into a problem, which was, okay, that's fine, but then how do we deal with the processing that's necessary to engage in and to create, um, to allow these transfers? Because obviously transfers take computing power and take energy as a result. They won't do it on their own. So how do you do that? And the idea was then you do what's called mining, which means you are having other people create new coins by processing, by doing the computation necessary to track all the transactions. By doing that and by making the mining amount, a limited amount, you're creating a limited number of tokens that over time gets more and more limited, which means that the value becomes, you know, effectively higher and higher because you have, you're getting closer to your limited pool, um, but also allows for a closed loop where you're actually tracing these transactions, um, which is called proof of work. That's what the, the use in the, the universe. So, so you, you can get Bitcoin either by mining it or by buying it, right? That's correct. And mining it obviously takes a huge amount of computing power and energy. So who was actually out there mining Bitcoin? So there are um, a lot of people professionally mining Bitcoins. As you said, since uh, since Bitcoin started, it has gotten progressively more expensive and more requires more computational power and thus more energy to mine. So what we're seeing is we're seeing people moving to places where the cost of energy is relatively cheap, which is, means places that have easy access to hydropower or easy access to other things in the grid. So there's a lot of mining that takes place in China. There are a lot of mining that take place very near um, ready sources of alternative energies like nuclear or hydro because it's the cheapest. Your ordinary person is not going to want to plug into the routine and into the electrical grid in New York City where energy prices are high and try to go out and mine. They will not make money doing that. And then at, at what point have all the blockchain will have they been mined and like who ultimately, given that no one really controls, I mean, the Bitcoin, given that no one really controls Bitcoin, uh, is there no way to create more of it? So there is a theoretical point where it gets towards zero, but it's like a limit. There's always, as it as you get closer and closer to the limited number of blockchain of Bitcoins, it costs more and more computing power um, to actually produce them. So there will always be, so you will never actually get there but you'll get start getting really close and close to the point where theoretically it's not worth it to do it, and then you have um, then you have the question of okay, well, how are you going to continue to how are you going to continue to mine and continue to deal with the transfers? Um, what we've seen over time is that you need to do somewhat less of that because now you have the coin bases of the world, where as you said, you can buy a currency and you don't necessarily need to you don't need to mine to validate anymore. You can validate the currency, but you can have the you can have the exchanges assist. Right. So. I 
when do you think we hit the point where the cost of, of mining through the energy and computational power exceeds the cost of just buying a Bitcoin on, on the market? It's, you know, you would say sometime in the next five years, it depends on how they get smarter in terms of computing power and, you know, the access to clean energy. Obviously, as it gets cheaper to compute um, with, you know, Maxwell's law, et cetera, you will, you start to see it, you know, the costs coming down as the, as the amount comes up, but let's say five years. Right. And, and blockchain is considered to be, and therefore Bitcoin and other currencies on blockchain are considered to be incredibly safe from a uh, uh, hacking standpoint. Why? Uh, they're safe because every, literally every Bitcoin owner owns the entire history of Bitcoin within their coin. They own, that's the distributed nature of the ledger. So if anybody wants to prove up any transaction that's happened, all you have to do is find two different Bitcoin holders, compare their ledgers, and as long as they're the same, which they should be operationally, then you can prove up that this is accurate. And you can find, if you believe that one of them is inaccurate, then you find a third holder. So, so you know, you're talking about kind of proof of war and being able to, you can prove that, that, that it's your Bitcoin because you can prove every step in the transaction. But who are you proving it to? Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a sovereignless currency. So, so by definition, no one's really in charge. I think, you know, theoretically, you're proving it to anyone you want to sell it to. I mean, at this point, it's, I like to think of Bitcoin myself as like gold, right? And uh, similar to gold, it's really bad as being a currency, and I think calling Bitcoin a cryptocurrency is always a little misleading because it's it's really now much more like a store of value. And when you're trying to sell gold, you need to show them the gold. And it's if someone really asks, you need to prove that it's gold. And how do you prove that it's gold? You you know do the chemical analysis. If someone doesn't believe that your Bitcoin that your Bitcoin is a real Bitcoin, they can look at the ledger. And it's kind of structurally the same thing. Um, most of the time, if you see a piece of gold, you're going to believe it's gold, um, or you're going to look for some external validation. And that's what the coinbases of the world offer. And and people therefore believe that it has value simply because why because they say that there's a there's proof of of work and there's a free and fair market for the price of bitcoin so therefore it's ultimately no less tangible than any other asset yeah i mean again it's just like gold people think that it's valuable because they know there's a market for it and that they know that there's an established price and the price of gold fluctuates up and down, but they still know it will almost always have value. And Bitcoin the same way. People know that they have an established price for it. They know it's the genuine article. They know there's a limited amount, so you're not gonna have this kind of rapid inflation or dilution. And they know that they have a, they'll have a means to exchange it if they need to. Now, unlike gold, it's uh, it's a lot cheaper to store, right? It's digital, so you all you need effectively is a custodian like a Coinbase of the world to to keep track of your your Bitcoin. You don't have to keep it in Fort Knox. Um, the other side of it, obviously, is it's more expensive to maintain the processing and the transfers. So, what's Ethereum? Ethereum is a different blockchain, and Ethereum has a different token. Um, and the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum is that Bitcoin was created strictly to be a currency. The the Bitcoin, you know, and people can use Bitcoin for other things, but it was generally the blockchain was designed to be a currency. Ethereum was designed differently. It was designed, and it has, you know, it's a proof of work currency or a proof of work system as well. But it was designed to launch 
launch other decentralized applications on it. So that if you want to do something other than hosting a currency, if you want to host some other kind of information or do something else that would require a blockchain, mobile voting, for example, you could use the Ethereum blockchain to store that type of information. So it's it's generally speaking more flexible. But then, and then the other currencies other than Bitcoin, uh, how are they transacted and how are they mined? So it the, a lot of them work generally the same way, which is to say many of many of the currencies out there, and there are literally, I would say now hundreds, there are hundreds of currencies, there are hundreds of blockchains and hundreds of currencies out there. And they find, I guess, two flavors generally. You have the proof of work where you validate the transactions by doing some type of mathematical computation. And then the other side is what's called proof of stake where rather than you know making your validation by computations what you ultimately do is you validate the chain through a voting type of mechanism so there's uh there's some type of mega there's some type of meta vote here in order to prove up that the blockchain is real that you have the real computations you don't do it by you know looking at the underlying math you do it by people agreeing with it so it's like social consensus. And those are those are the two general types of chains that are out there. Um, again, they have varying styles and varying structures, and they are designed for different things. But that's that's kind of the universe. And then so Coinbase went public last week. It's gotten a lot of attention. Uh, I imagine there are some people who are still wondering, okay, that's great, but what is Coinbase? Right. So what Coinbase is, is Coinbase is an exchange like Robinhood or TD Ameritrade or Charles Schwab that allows you to trade uh, tokens. So you can buy Bitcoin or buy Ethereum or any of the other dozens of tokens that are out there. Um, in addition to buying it, it's a broader business that allows you to hold those tokens. Um, it, it has what's called a custodial feature, which means it is the bank for you for your tokens. It allows you to trade. It allows you to do various types of financial transactions with the token. But it is, um, it is, you know, for the crypto universe, it is like the Robinhood. It is a simple, user-friendly way to buy and sell digital goods. So uh, you and I put food on the table by theoretically understanding what's going to happen in regulated markets and issues, and then being able to influence the outcome. How is crypto currently regulated? So crypto is, uh, it's currently regulated in two ways. The underlying assets themselves are often treated like commodities. In the same way, you know, go to go back to the gold, anything that is a something that can be bought or sold on an exchange is by default treated like a commodity. Now, oftentimes when people were putting together the business plans to create these blockchains, they raised money by selling currency, by selling tokens. That process looked a whole lot like the fundraising for a security. It looked like the sale of that equity. So the SEC has been involved in a number of enforcement actions when they believe that uh, people who were forming a, you know, a blockchain stepped over the line and treated it too much like equity. I think we'll continue to see that. I think the SEC has been very slow in creating kind of hard and fast rules for what is a very changeable environment. But I think we will continue to see if people who are um, promoting new tokens step over the line and treat them too much like equity. We'll see the SEC come in and say you are, you know, promoting a security improperly, and we'll see those shut down. Otherwise, we will see the CFTC step in if we believe that people are treating them like a commodity and violating the commodities rules. Beyond that, 
I think we will see relatively limited engagement from from regulators because ultimately those are the regulatory tools we have. And I think, quite frankly, that the technology is advancing too quickly for the regulators to keep up. Um, given that it is kind of a sovereignless currency or let's call it asset class by design, is this one of those cases where it really makes sense for China, the EU and the U.S.? to try to figure out a macro regulatory structure. And even if it makes sense, will that ever happen? First of all, I don't think it will ever happen. Um, What we've seen in the first 10 years of regulation of this is that as one country, as one sovereign nation decides that they want to try to put some type of limitations on the currency, because of the digital world and the fact that you can move a platform, a digital platform from one jurisdiction to another, Unless you're doing something really aggressive like your anti-Iran sanctions, it is very hard to get multinational consensus, and it is very hard to lock the product out of enough markets for it to be meaningful. So you get a race to the bottom, and then when people, when regulators start to see that it's a race to the bottom, they realize that ultimately there's always going to be a market in which this is available and that they're um, that ultimately they're uh, the people that they're regulating their constituents are going to be poorly served by the block it approach and better served by the let's figure out how to educate and let's make sure we keep the bad actors out approach so that's, i think that's what we continue to see yeah so i mean it's, it feels to me like there's sort of two ways to interpret all this from here if i'm a listener and i don't kind of work and live in and around the crypto space um, like we do, which is one would be, so why does any of this matter, right? We're simply talking about one asset class like many. It's not like we all spend tons of time reading and talking about the gold, um, although I guess they did in 1849. And therefore, this whole thing is just sort of a waste of energy, not both both literally, but also in terms of the, you know, all the attention that's being paid to it, including this podcast. Or the other approach would be to say, look, this this is so important because it's a proxy for where the world is today, right? Um, people have lost faith in institutions, whether it's government, media, the banks, the church, whatever it is. Um, and rather than putting their trust in institutions that they think have failed them, uh, they're looking to each other um, to find, create, and validate, and ultimately transact uh, their own forms of currency. And, and if they're doing it with currency, in theory, that could happen, you know, with lots of things too. Religion could work without a centralized institution. All kinds of things could. And so, to you, is this sort of a tempest in a teapot and kind of a, a waste of time, or is this a, a very small window onto kind of where the world is going? So, for me, it's it's kind of a mixture of both. Weirdly, um, I do think it is a mix. It is a direct. It is a indicative of the way the world is going in that it allows people through you know working together in various ways or through using advanced digital tools to have greater freedom and to uh, you know to uh, allow themselves to kind of self verify or collectively verify and i think that that decentralization or kind of deregulation is is a place that we're seeing. We're seeing that with Coinbase more generally allowing crypto to come up, but we're also seeing with like telemedicine, for example, where people are saying, let me make the decisions myself on what the right level of care is for me. And if I want to go online to get an initial evaluation, I can do so. That's that, you know, I have the freedom to do that. So I I do think we're seeing that to some extent and that it is a broader part of the like 21st century digital zeitgeist of saying this these tools are available let's just do it ourselves 
But at the same time, I guess for me, you know, it's a relatively limited asset class for people who want to store value, unless you're using the platform to do real things for real people. Um, and I think that's where the real promise of the Coinbase's of the world are, is you have, you'll always have Bitcoin, which will be interesting for traders, institutional investors, and you know, maybe some retail enthusiasts. But if some of these other cryptocurrencies break through, if some of these other blockchains break through with amazing de decentralized or you know, decentralized financial apps or decentralized identity apps that are creating huge value for people, that by itself is going to be transformative. And so let, let's take as, as the last question here, a, a step back even, even further, which is, okay, so we start moving towards a more decentralized world due to the combination of far greater access to advanced technology and lack of faith institutions. So cryptocurrency is an example of that. Mobile voting, if you took what we're doing to its full logical conclusion, could theoretically result in a full liquid digital democracy where you don't even need legislative bodies, right? Where you could have a referendum on every single thing. I don't think that will happen, but, but you could move towards that. Um, we saw during COVID uh, the tremendous decentralization of healthcare. I, I believe that's a trend that has really only just begun. Um, is it good to decentralize because it gives more people regular power and makes life more convenient and easy and, and accessible? Or is it bad because we need central institutions to kind of keep kind of people both in line and set standards and morals? And without that, we're lost as a society. Right. So... I mean, this is like, at its heart, you're asking me for my vision of what the right level of regulation should be on everything. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'm, a, I'm moderate on this as a lot of things. I think the goal of regulation in all of this needs to be finding ways to keep out the, broad, the bad actors and the fraudsters. Um, and I think that it's important to have some degree of regulatory standards out there so that if somebody says that they're offering up some type of token or other service and they're just not providing it, that those kind of people get shut down because they destroy our faith in the markets generally. Beyond that, I think it's important that people make the decisions for themselves. And I think the decentralization that you know cryptocurrency, mobile voting, and others provide, assuming you hit a certain amount of protection, uh, is critically important. And that's what's taking us forward. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because what I think you're saying is, generally speaking, decentralization is, is good and give people more access to the market in whatever form it is, whether it's, it's votes or healthcare or, or, or crypto, um, but protect them from really bad actors. But what's interesting is in protecting them from bad actors, even if the amount of actual regulatory work that needs to be done is, is limited, it all is based on an assumption of um, courts and a law enforcement system and prisons and, and all of these things that give it weight, right? Without it, uh, you know, regulators only matter because they can put you in jail or fine you a lot of money or take away your license to operate, which then gets back to still the need for these big institutions that, that can enforce collective action in a way that individuals can't. That yeah, right? that's, that's, that's absolutely right. But, you know, at the end of the day, we should also be in mind that every time that you create an intermediary like this or somebody that helps you to prevent bad actors that's an opportunity for someone else to come in and place a fee. So the goal is you're always going to need these big kind of multinational organizations. You're always going to need a government to enforce um, kind of the anti-bad action stuff. 
but it's got to be kept to a minimum because every time you go through, you create an additional transaction cost that just hurts people. Right. Well, uh, Bob, I think that's a it's probably as much as it people can take uh, of us talking about crypto. So thank you for joining. Thanks to the listeners for listening. And I'm supposed to say this after every podcast. But I always forget, but I have to just remember. Um, if you like this podcast, please rate and review us on uh, whatever system you use. Uh, that will help more people find out uh, about Firewall. So, Bob, thanks for joining us. Thank you.